This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, this is The Media Mix. I'm Claire Atkinson, and with me today is Yasser Khan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Yasser and I had dinner a few weeks ago in Lisbon, and we had some great crab and some great fish, and we had a good conversation about what's going on in journalism. We talked about outrage journalism and the idea that in order to get an audience, uh, journalism has to provoke a strong reaction, and often that leaves people feeling like they can't solve these problems or they're left feeling, you know, what can I do about gun violence? What can I do about politics that feels far away from where I live? Yeah, so you are doing something that is aimed at addressing some of that feeling of helplessness among the, the audience. Tell us a bit about what you do, what the mission is at the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Well, uh, thank you for having me on. And yes, the crab was great, wasn't it? At the Thomson Reuters Foundation, we run a newsroom and a website that is called Context. And it is what it says on the label, which is providing context around some of the biggest issues of our time. We focus on three things, climate, inclusive economies, which is socioeconomic inequality, fair labor, modern slavery, and the impact of tech on society. So we do data privacy, digital rights, surveillance, and artificial intelligence. And what is missing, I think, from a lot of journalism today, a lot of journalism designed for quick consumption, as in this is happening and this is happening and this is happening, is it's a lot of reporting that is devoid of context. We report and the what and the where, and not a lot of attention is paid to the how and the why. There are news organizations that have clued into that and have made a real dent in things like Ross Atkins on the Beeb and a few others. But, you know, that sort of journalism requires time and effort to come across and to consume. What is available to you very, very quickly, as I was saying during our dinner conversation, is this horrible thing happened, and then this horrible thing happened, and then this person yeah. did this. It leaves you worn out, and it makes you want to tune out of the news. You know, I get a lot of complaints about climate journalism being all doom and gloom, and what can we do to, you know, get audiences to not tune out? And that is you know, what we can do, and we do here at, at TRF and at Context, is to provide context around issues like rising heat, issues like loss and damage, loss and damage being countries that are the least polluting are the ones that'll face the biggest impact of climate change. And how do we address those issues? Or something we report on, which is called Just Transition, which is how do we take people along in a fair and equitable manner in our move to green economies? At the core of all of our journalism and providing that context is the idea that informed citizenry is a citizenry that can make better decisions. And informed citizens make for, you know, in turn make up informed societies. And our motto is, you know, we borrowed a line from Maya Angelou, and our motto is, no better, do better. And that is, you know, what we intend to do with our journalism is, when people read our articles or watch our videos, 
they not only walk away with what's happening in the world, but also how can they use the information in our journalism to make better decisions as citizens? And I think that is what is missing from a lot of daily news journalism, which is, you know, because you only you have like 15 minutes to fill in your bulletin, you want to pack as much into it as possible. And about 50,000 horrible things have happened in the world, one of which is climate. And, you know, what we don't want to do is sugarcoat things that, oh, no, everything is fine, because it isn't. The world is on fire. But there are opportunities in there for us to do better on things. And I think that is what our focus is on. I'll give you a quick example of how, what kind of impact that kind of journalism has. So about a year and a half ago, we reported on federal firefighters in the U.S. fighting wildfires and increased rates of cancer among those uh, firefighters and how the system to address their health concerns was broken. And many of them were languishing just trying to paying these exorbitant fees for cancer treatment and not being compensated. Well, after our reports came out, we did a couple of reports. And after our reports came out, influential senators took our report to the Biden White House. And what ended up happening, you know, this year was that the Biden White House fast tracked cancer care for those for those firefighters. If, you know, we hadn't done contextual, deeply reported journalism around that topic, I don't know if that effect would have taken place. So, you know, and many such examples in our our work. Uh, A few years ago, we did a report on forced labor in Thai prisons. But what the forced labor was for was making fishing nets for the American fishing industry. And again, because of our reporting, the government of Thailand saw that as something that would have a business impact. And they enacted legislation that banned forced labor in in the prison system. Again, you know, contextual journalism, deeply reported journalism that is not focused on outrage, but impact ends up actually having an impact as opposed to leaving your audiences feeling exhausted and and angry and exhausted uh, and helpless. Do you feel that when you switch on the TV or you read the papers or you check out social media, do you feel... I don't watch television anymore. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think news television is good. Does two things very, very well: big breaking news, like for example, nine eleven, and then rolling coverage of something big. But in terms of the daily news, the hourly news bulletins, I don't think anybody has the time to watch those. And I don't. And by the time they get to one of those bulletins, you've already found out about that stuff from the internet. So I think those are a vestige that just does just refuses to go away. Just the need to fill 24 hours of airtime with that kind of repetition and bite-sized work. But when I do go on social, yes, there's a lot of outrage. Just the other day, we were having a conversation about, you know, the level of engagement on Twitter on, on a fake story or, or you know, AI-generated story or pictures of video versus actual real news. Um, and, you know, I learned recently that bad news and fake news travel six times faster on social platforms than than either real news or, you know, half decent news. Um, so, yes, it, it's a huge concern among newsrooms, including ours, about how we survive and find our place in an environment like that. And my gut feeling has always been that good content and useful content and valuable content that adds meaningfully to the lives of our consumers will transcend algorithms. 
because at the end of the day, what does the algorithm do? Or what does any algorithm do? It amplifies things that people are consuming more of. It gives them more of that. And I think if we can reach critical mass through our work, our journalism, and not by that, I don't just mean us, but as a collective industry, if we reach critical mass of doing useful things that people can use in their lives to make better decisions, I think we'll trump the algorithm. And that's probably, you know, I'm sure computer scientists will laugh at me for, for saying that. I'm sure audience producers everywhere will probably laugh at me for saying that. Well, you have a background in this, right? You you have made your own share of viral videos. I have. And, you know, in the early days at Al Jazeera, when we created the video unit at Al Jazeera English, we did have several runaway viral hits. And that is where I learned this from, is that when you flood your feed with things that people can use in their lives or things that people can learn from, you don't have to play games with the internet to do that. Uh, or you don't have to, you know, make shady deals with Meta to do that. Uh, you can do it on the strength of your content, but the content really has to be good because as I always tell, you know, our team here and other teams that I've ran before, on the internet, you're not just competing against other news organizations, you're competing literally against cat videos. Uh, because at my fingertips are cat videos, is a ton of porn and all sorts of other things and good journalism. So, you know, somebody asked me recently if all of that other content was a threat. And I, my answer was, no, it is forcing us to be better. It is forcing us to make our work count. And if we don't clue into that, then, yeah, of course, we deserve to be relegated to the, you know, to the backwaters of the Internet. Do you think there's a business model for these deeply global, long investigative stories that take time, they take effort? You have a foundation behind you. It's a nonprofit, I believe it's from, it's based in Canada. Are we seeing that model really leaving mainstream journalism? So we are based in the US and the UK. We are sort of charitable arm of, of Thomson Reuters and we are based in, we are registered in the US and the UK. Thomson Reuters, yes, you know, is in Canada. But look, I think there is a business model. It's just that the price tag is huge, right? Because investigative work, good quality journalism is expensive. You know, hiring that sort of talent, giving them the time and the space and the tools to do that level of work. I mean, where do we find that level of work these days? We find that either in really well-funded small outfits or we find it in the really big shops like the Washington Post and the New York Times who have the resources and the people to do it. And that's the tragedy is, is that there is a business model, but it requires a lot of investment in order to produce the kind of results. But my pushback on that is if we want a monetary sort of gain type of outcome from news journalism, then we are out to lunch. I think our... ROI sort of calculus on good, deeply reported journalism should be what kind of societies are we creating? That might sound very naive and unrealistic because at the end of the day, you know, people do want to see what they're getting in return for their investment. And that's usually in monetary or audience terms. But, you know, if things like the climate crisis proves anything to us, there are things beyond, you know, making a profit on your investment or having large numbers of people 
watch or read your content? And that is, what kind of impact are we having on society? And your organization goes down a couple of different verticals here, media freedom and LGBTQ plus and women and climate. Tell us about some of the stories that you've really loved and some of the things that you want to achieve uh, moving forward. The Thompson Rogers Foundation, we do a few things uh, besides having our newsroom. And that is, uh, we do a lot of training work and media freedom work uh, across the world. Part of that is a journalism in exile program that we run in the EU with Russian and Ukrainian journalists. Uh, We train journalists in other parts of the world. We also do something called inclusive economies where we do policy work on socioeconomic inequality in various parts of the world. Our uh, trust law team literally provides millions uh, of pounds uh, worth of pro bono legal assistance to media freedom organizations, civil society organizations, and climate organizations around the world. So we do a few of those different things. But the key sort of uh, focus throughout our work is to create better informed and better equipped societies that are equitable and free and fair. And that has always been, you know, the raison d'etre of of the foundation. And uh, all the work, including our journalism, is focused on that. Um, I'll give you an example of another story. So a couple of years ago, we did a story about these descendants of ex-enslaved Mozambican people who were freed in the 1850s, but taken to South Africa and put to work as laborers. And they were given little bits of land. And then when apartheid happened, all that land was taken away from them. And for the last few generations, these their descendants have been fighting for to get that land back. Um, after our reporting went out, the community leaders from this particular community of slave descendants, Mozambique and slave descendants, started getting calls from South Africa's land reform department saying, hey, let's start talking about how we can give you your land back. I mean, that is, I get goosebumps every time I tell that story because that is real world impact. That is transformative impact. And that can only happen when you tell those stories that nobody's telling and you tell them in ways that impact people's lives. We just did a story about the obliteration of Gaza's fledgling tech industry as a result of the bombing. You know, most people didn't know this, but Gaza had, you know, very, very talented people who were software developers and who were software engineers and app makers and and all of those sort of things who were supporting startups, you know, around the world or supporting companies around the world. And all that talent took years to build. And we could have told the outrage story on Gaza. And, you know, Yes, that is also necessary about the body count and the lack of resources and all the politics of it. But it's also important to tell this story because when tech workers in a different part of the world read that story, they can relate and they can they can imagine what kind of catastrophic loss this must be uh, in very, very real terms. That happened in the Ukraine also. That exactly. A lot of the tech workers- and we reported on the tech workers in Ukraine who, who had been impacted when that war started. And that is a really necessary story to tell. Another one was a story that we did in the US about companies using large language models to surveil uh, the speech and, and communications of prisoners without their consent in eight different states. And that was such a huge eye-opener for a lot of civil rights and prisoners' rights folks and digital rights folks that, you know, a lot of this information is readily available to people Our job is to bring it all together and tell you what it means and what kind of policy impact it would have 
you know, doing a story about the economic impact after Roe v. Wade, the economic impact of possibly having to shut down large chunks of your workforce because they're pregnant and they can't get an abortion. What is the impact on your GDP? I mean, that is a great story that, you know, very few people were telling. A lot of people were telling the story about, you know, this horrible thing just happened. But I think fewer and fewer people would tell the story about how is, is this going to impact our society. And I bet you, after knowing about the economic impact of Roe v. Wade, people would probably make decisions a bit differently than they would if they were approaching it purely from a biblical or a political sense. So yeah, and, and, and that's necessary work, especially as journalists, that's necessary work. How do we find these stories, Yasser? Where are they? Are they on YouTube? Are they on Thomson Reuters Y service? So our website is context.news. And we have uh, a YouTube channel as well. And we're on social platforms. On Twitter, we're at, at Context Newsroom. We're on LinkedIn and Instagram. So any of these places. Uh, and we, uh, we're we linked to the Thomson Reuters Foundation. So if you end up on their website, there are, there are links to us as well. And what is your ROI? Are people asking you, hey, who's reading this stuff, Yasser? Or are they saying, okay, you impacted uh, legislation and you changed the world, so you're good? Well, the, well, we, there are a few sort of metrics for us that are important. Uh, one is obviously the impact that our work has uh, in places where we report. And our newsroom stretches from Manila to Mexico City. We've made a conscious decision to hire local journalists in each one of those places who will tell local stories that are of global relevance. So, you know, the impact is one. The second thing is obviously readership, but not a large flyby readership, but rather a more loyal and also influential readership. People who work in policy, in think tanks, in academia, in government, at the UN, people who can print off one of our articles and take it into the room and go, hey, what can we do about this? And that has actually happened where a Scottish member of parliament did print off our article about uh, Afghan judges in peril in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, and printing off the article and taking it to 10 Downing Street, um, and and Rishi Sunak promising to do something about it, right? Like so, that's another metric of success: a, a loyal and and influential audience. And then third is obviously, you know, how long do they read our work for? As in, when they come to the website, and you know, I'm happy to report that we have an engagement rate of 60% on our work, which means 60% of the people who do come to our work stick around for at least 20 seconds to read the work before they leave the website. Um, uh, so the data can really uh, depress you as a journalist to see how fleeting the attention span of the audience is. And I don't know that the scrolling through social makes people feel like I got to get onto something else. But you know, when you see engagement of literally a couple of seconds on a deeply reported story, it's hard to see that. It is. And, and you know, it, 20 seconds might sound like a short amount of time, but time yourself for 20 seconds and see how far you can read into an article. You can get through quite a bit. Uh, and 20 seconds is the bare minimum. I'm sure the read time is a lot higher and I don't have it at my fingertips. But the point is that if there are a small number of influential people reading our work for that amount of time, then that's something. But, you know, we have a long way to go, right? Yes, we, as I was saying earlier, we, the availability of so much information at our fingertips, including fake and nefarious information is, is yes, of course, a threat, but it's also a calling, you know, a siren to us to say, you need to make your work better. You need to make your photos arresting enough that I will stop 
at your post during a doom scroll. You need to make your lead and your first three paragraphs, you know, arresting enough that I will be curious enough to move, read further. You need to make your headline arresting enough that I stop dead in my tracks. I read it and I go, I want to know about this stuff. And so that's a lot of work and that's a lot of constant work. You're not going to figure out the formula and coast on it. And that's the beauty of doing journalism on digital platforms. You're never ready. You're always learning and you're always applying and then either succeeding or failing. And when you fail, you're learning from that and applying whatever you've applied from, you've learned from that. So it's a constant state of growth and learning. How do you feel about like Elon taking over X and a lot of journalists saying, you know what, this is not the place for us anymore. Some of them are moving to threads. But I mean, I notice I'm an independent journalist. It's very difficult to get traction on some of your stories and get people to notice you and to kind of get into the blood unless, you know, there's a big distribution platform behind you. We're having that conversation here. So, you know, what what do we do with X? We haven't come to a conclusion yet, but it is definitely on our radar. At a personal level, you know, Twitter was the first place I would go to in case of breaking news. I don't do that anymore because it is just so full of a lot of negativity, a lot of partisanship, but a lot of, uh, you know, disinformation, a lot of trolling, a lot of bots, and you have to do a lot of sifting before you end up on something useful. In fact, I was talking to my 10-year-old daughter the other day about how easy it is, even on things like Instagram, where it takes about 10 posts before you get offered pornography, for instance, or something inappropriate for, for kids. As a parent, it's it's a real minefield. But also as a journalist, my habits are changing with Twitter, you know, over the past year because of the nature of, you know, what Twitter ha- or X has become. I don't know how long this will go on for. I mean, Twitter has existed since 2006 and it's had a good run. And this whole shit show, if I can use that word on your on your program. You can, it, because it is. The shit show has, hap- <laughs> has been a year long, since October of last yeah. year. I don't know where it's going. I have a feeling that Twitter is not never going to be the same again. But what is it going to be? I don't know. But the thing with Threads and Blue Sky and all of these other platforms is, I don't know if they're going to survive. Or I don't know how, you know, who's going to end up on those. Yes, of course. We've opened accounts on all of those platforms, but what we're finding is, you know, it's going to take time. I mean, it took Twitter a while to get off the ground and become what it was, and we don't know where it's going to end up. We have opted to maintain a presence on it because even if half of our followers were bots, there's still the other half who are people who've taken the time to follow us and who might be interested in what we have to say. So we're hedging our bets at the moment. Um, We haven't made a decision whether to stay on or get off. Are you on TikTok? Uh, I'm not, but the organization is, yes. Our LGBTQ um, website openly has a TikTok channel, which is wildly successful. We just won two Lovey Awards for it. So we're very, very proud of it. And yeah, here's the thing with TikTok, though. It speaks to a very, very particular generation, and even within that generation, a very particular niche. And we're having to do a lot of explaining about how that generation speaks to each other to people who are a lot more senior and who are not used to that kind of vernacular and that kind of way of communicating and constantly having to educate, you know, people like me or older who think, what are we doing with our journalism? Is this what we've come down to? You know, have we just boiled everything down to song and dance or cats or whatever? But it is such a smart way of communicating 
and efficient way of communicating. And sometimes I'm in awe of, you know, Gen Z folks who make a really salient point on Twitter through cats and dances that it would take me a minute 30 to make, you know, as a scripted, you know, uh, news story. And probably a, a quarter of the people who watch that TikTok video would actually watch my TV report. But the idea is that the point's been made, you know, in a much more powerful, much more impactful, much more succinct way. But I think there's a lot of translation work that needs to happen between those people and people actually, you know, in the newsrooms who are much, much older than those folks going, what is going on? Why can't we get this? Um, just to wind up, Yasser, I wanted to ask you about the Middle East. You've lived there. You lived in Qatar. You worked for Al Jazeera. The Middle East has, it seems, a lot of money to invest in the entertainment business in the West and also in news products. Twofold question, really. Are you seeing Middle Eastern countries opening up at home to more of a criticism? And what do you make of the UAE's bid for the Telegraph via Jeff Zucker? I'll keep it big picture. I think it's not just Middle East money. You have to understand that it's not Middle East money. It's actually Middle East Gulf money. It's a very particular type of money. And I've earned that money for seven years of my life working at Al Jazeera. One thing to understand about money from the Persian slash Arabian Gulf is that it never comes with no strings attached. Ever, ever, ever. And there's always an ask behind it. And you just need to sort of hang around a little while before you figure out what the ask is. Or there's a certain direction. And look, at the end of the day, it's all about exerting influence, right? Um, for Qatar, Al Jazeera is a soft power tool. But at, as a journalist, it was a godsend because we could do any story that we wanted in the world and have the budget for it, except for these two or three stories that are inconvenient to the hand that feeds you. And, you know, a lot of us took that deal because, for example, who the hell gives you money to go cover the elections in Burundi? Al Jazeera does. Who you know, flies you to Bangkok to cover the red shirt protests that was so consequential in the history of that country. Nobody but Al Jazeera does. And as a journalist, you get to do that you, because that's what you're in this business for. You're in this business for telling stories that matter to various parts of the world. And I was recently giving a talk to a journalism class in Canada where I said, you know, young journalists today, we are given a choice between poverty and propaganda. And by that, I don't mean literal propaganda. I mean, you know, fulfilling some state's, uh, you know, political agenda, be it soft power, be it pushing a viewpoint or whatever it is. Because if you look around, who's paying living wages to journalists today? Other than, you know, folks like Thomson Reuters Foundation, which is, which you know, outfits like these are few and far between. But it's Russia Today, it's TRT World, it's Al Jazeera, it's, or it's the big corporates that have their own corporate agendas, right? So we are in a, in a situation where journalists are human beings and need to make a living wage. And the people who are <laughs> paying them living wages are the CGTNs and the TRT Worlds of this world. Of course, the mortgage needs to be paid and you need to make a decision at some point. So by extension, within the same sort of framework, the Gulf money, it comes with things attached. It depends on whether you as journalists are comfortable with those strings or not. 
And so uh, what I would say to folks at The Telegraph or at Al Jazeera or at The Independent or whatever it is, is you get to decide, you know, how much Kool-Aid are you willing to drink? And based on that, make your decisions about what to do. But at the end of the day, you can still be in those places and still do good journalism. You can. It's possible. It is so great to have you on the show. And I could listen to you endlessly talk about these topics. Tell us one more time how we find the content, what the uh, call outs are, where we can read it. So our website is context.news. We have two Twitter handles at Context Newsroom. And the other one is at Context Climate, which is dedicated to our climate coverage. On TikTok, our TikTok channel for our LGBTQ website is called Openly. And it's tiktok.com slash openly. And yeah, and if you want to come to the website, we'd be happy to see you there. And that is, again, context.news. And we're on LinkedIn as well as Context Newsroom. Got it. Yasser Khan, Editor-in-Chief of Thomson Reuters Foundation. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Claire. Good to see you again. That was Yasser Khan, Editor-in-Chief of the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Love what you're hearing on the Media Mix? Check out our other episodes, our conversation with Axios's Sarah Fisher and the Daily Beast's Lachlan Cartwright looks ahead to the new year with stories to watch. Then our chat with Johanna Masca focuses on TikTok and the Chinese and the Republican primary debates in the US. Uh, if you want to stay in the mix, be sure to subscribe to the Media Mix newsletter. Thanks to our team for this excellent run with the Situation Room Studios and my executive producers, Jamie Maglietta and Ray Hernandez. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.